being first generation, um, I had to learn, I was the first to graduate from college, the first to have like a career that offered a 401k or any of that stuff, which was not talked about in my family. I mean, my mom never got offered a mm -hmm. 401k for, you know, her work. So I was kind of starting from scratch. Like, so I had to teach myself a lot about personal finance, retirement, uh, investing, just all these things. And I realized there's also a lot of other people who are in our shoes being first generation. Welcome to Gladiatrix. I am woman and hear me raw. I'm your host, Malini Sarma. Every week, I will be speaking with women from all over the world who will be sharing their journeys, their stories about overcoming their fears and achieving great things that they thought they never could. So if you don't want to miss a story, make sure you subscribe. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the amazing, beautiful, badass women who have been guests on this show. I had a mission to travel to every country in the world, but since that didn't work out, my new mission is to speak to at least one woman from every country in the world. There are 193 countries, and I still have at least 180 to go. So, if you know of somebody who has an amazing story to tell, let me know. I'm all ears. In today's episode, we're speaking with Evie Prete. Evie was born and raised in Southern California, but her mother came over from Mexico. Even though money was tight, education was important, and Evie was the first one in her family to go to college. In today's episode, Evie talks about being the only one of two women of color in her college engineering program, finding the courage to get out of an abusive relationship, and starting her own business. And this is her story. Hey, Evie, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm really excited to hear your story. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and just to chat. Oh, you're very welcome. So you were born in the U.S. Your mom's from Mexico and you grew up with uh, parents or pretty much in an environment surrounded by other uh, people just like you. Right. So tell me a little bit more about you growing up as a you know first generation um, in California. Yeah, well. My mom worked in cleaning houses and my dad had like a, I'm not sure exactly what he did, but he worked in doing some uh, paperwork job, but I know it wasn't much because where we grew up was kind of like lower income. And I also just grew up in a Spanish speaking community and growing up, you know, we didn't have a lot of things. And unfortunately I saw my parents arguing over like rent and money a lot. So, you know, my upbringing is very from a scarcity, like money is hard to come by money is hard to make. Um, you know, we always had like, we never had the newest toys or newest like gadgets, you know? Um, so definitely, you know, I guess from a place of lower income, but I had a great, like, I feel like I had a great childhood with my siblings and with the kids in the neighborhood. So it wasn't until maybe like middle school that I realized that we were poor, <laughs> you know? Um, 
Well, yeah, it's a little bit about me and my background. Um, I guess I grew up in a place where, like, uh, I was told, like, I couldn't do certain things. Like, I couldn't play with the boys. I couldn't play soccer. And I kind of just went and did it anyway. So it was very just in my nature to do things that people said I couldn't do. I guess it was, like, always a part of me to to prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still do that today. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so growing up in a Spanish-speaking neighborhood – um, was you did you learn English in school? Is it, was that how you kind of picked up? Um, so that was so you were you were pretty much thinking in two languages. Yeah, I learned them simultaneously. So my dad spoke English, so I was able to learn both. Um, so I don't I didn't really struggle too much with English. I do sometimes like I guess with anyone who speaks two languages, sometimes I'll think in a language and then I'll you know, be stuck and say, oh, what's the word in English? I don't know this word in English, <laughs> but I know it in Spanish. Right. Um, and the same for Spanish. Sometimes there's some words in, in Spanish that I don't know them in Spanish. I only know them in English. So, yeah. So growing up, like you said, you know, you're close-knit with your siblings and your parents and going, you know, most kids actually have a hard time figuring out what to do after high school, right? I mean, in your case, um, you knew that you were going planning to go to college, but how did you come to that conclusion or, you know, how did you navigate through that decision-making process? Sure. That's a great question. So I was lucky enough to have, um, I think a teacher that recognized my potential, but I mean, my mother and my father didn't really have college education. So, uh, they knew college was important and they pushed me to do good in school but there wasn't really guidance in how to get there or what to even do, what, you know, what major to, to, you know, apply for or how to fund for college. So I was lucky to have, uh, I was part of a program called AVID and my AVID teacher was the one who kind of saw potential in me and kind of pushed me to, she put me in AV classes I didn't want to be in. And now like, I was not happy about it, but to this day, I'm like really close with her. And I'm just like, thank you for pushing me because I would not have signed up for them. Um, but I had a teacher who helped me a lot and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I was good at math and I was good at science, but I guess growing up, all I heard was like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, none of which interested me. And, um, I think my teacher suggested engineering and I kind of looked into it and I remember senior year applying to college and being like, well, I really like Armageddon the movie. So I think I'm going to like aerospace engineering. (laughs) So I kind of chose my major off of like some, like a teacher's suggestion in a movie, which is like kind (laughs) of hilarious. So that's kind of how I got some guidance. As far as did you have, did you worry about funding? Did you like, oh my God, how am I going to afford to pay for this? Were your parents worried about that? Or you, would you get scholarships? How did, or did your teacher help you and say, no, you know what? You can apply for scholarships. How did that, how did that work out? Um, I had a te- the same teacher who helped me a lot and she, you know, pushed me to apply for different scholarships and different programs and funding. And I had, I think I had like a 4.2 GPA coming out of high school. So I got a lot of Um, I think I got a full ride initially and I had a lot of different scholarships throughout my career. So funding it wasn't um, that much of an issue, but it only wasn't an issue because I had someone push me to be proactive about it. Um, So if I hadn't had her, I don't, I don't know how I would have figured out to, you know, 
want to figure that out. No, that's really important. Having mentors and, mm-hmm. you know, people to help you when you really need it and at least guide you. I think that's, that's super, super important. So your, your parents must be so proud because you are the first in your family to go to college and you uh, went into aerospace engineering, which I know don't have that many women. Is you know, is mm-hmm. a, a very uh, limited uh, number of women in that field. So, as a Latina and one of the few women in your aerospace in your engineering program, how did you navigate through that? Because I'm sure there were like biases as it is, mm-hmm. you know. And then, of course, being a woman cover there must be more. So, how did that work out? Man, that's a good question. I had so many experiences regarding that and biases that I experienced from my colleagues, from TAs, from even professors. I like do not have enough time to even share them all. That's how many, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there are. But one story I do like to share is I remember being in my, I think I was in my quantum physics class and I sat in the front. I always sat in the front and I We'll get to class like 10 minutes early because I kind of like to get there before everyone else did. And I remember sitting there and just kind of reviewing the notes from last time. And a guy was sitting behind me like a couple rows back. And I heard him talking to his friend and he was complaining about how it must be so easy for women uh, in the engineering program because like all they have to do is flirt with TAs and professors and they get good grades. And I remember like just like couldn't believe that like first of all like you're an engineer but you're hella dumb like how can Mm -hmm. you think that an institution would actually allow that to happen you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. second of all it's like that bias that like women don't work as hard Mm -hmm. is completely false if anything I think women work twice as hard because they're dealing going up against men like that. You know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. we have, we feel, I do feel sometimes that I have to prove that I'm even belong in the room. Right. Right. So it's, yeah, definitely. So you were in a program of, there must've been what you said, three women, maybe three or four women in a class of 50 or hundred. I would say maybe there's in a class of 50, there's probably like six or seven women in the upper division. And then of those women, there is maybe two women of color, including myself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, not very many women Mm -hmm. of color. No, not at all. Engineering programs. Yeah. I don't think I ever had a woman professor. Actually, that's not true. I did have a professor who was a woman in one of my classes. But out of all, yeah, out of all those years I I, went to school, I had one, which is insane. That's sad, isn't it? When you think mm-hmm. about it, wow. That's- I can't wait to see more women, especially women of color, um, you know, being in these like 10-year engineering roles. It's oh, going to yeah. happen. Oh, yes. I cannot wait. <laughs> yes, for sure. You mm-hmm. should definitely get, uh, you know, uh, get a position to teach as faculty in that same college. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> Even if it is just to do it as, you know, uh, uh, as a, as a, uh, what do you call for a one, one time thing or, or for just for a semester, but just to kind of give back and like, Hey, guess what? Yeah. You can like do having this some too. kind of, yeah. Like some, having some kind of workshop or seminar, that would be yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you were in college and, you know, your world opened up, 
right? I mean, mm-hmm. you not only kind of, you know, th- things like this, are all these kind of biases, which you probably didn't really have, you didn't think that you had to say something about, but it's so rampant and it was so, so much around you. Uh, mm-hmm. It really did open up your eyes. And it even um, in, in your case, you said you even, it kind of, kind of made you a little stronger and, you know, even got you out of a, an abusive relationship. So how did mm-hmm. you manage that? That's a really good question. So I think in my first couple of years of the university, you know, I was just kind of trying to figure out like what I wanted to do and what direction I wanted to go with my degree. And I was doing really well. And I had very supportive friends. Um, we partied hard, but we also studied harder, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had just a very good group of friends and I'm very thankful to them for everything that we've been through. And I was in a relationship. Um, I was in a relationship starting maybe when I was 16 with, um, you know, my childhood sweetheart or whatever. And um, at that age, like it wasn't obvious to me that there were some like abusive tendencies, like not physical at that point, just verbally or kind of just being a little manipulative or overly jealous big red flags that at 16, I just did not notice. Um, And then as I'm kind of like, you know, in college, like really stepping into, I guess myself, you know, and, and the woman that I'm kind of becoming, and I kind of started to create boundaries. And at some point, um, yeah, like I was in a, my relationship ended up becoming abusive. Uh, And at some point, you know, when he first put his hands on me, that was kind of like when I started to question everything and, you know, had the strength to like leave, which a lot of, I totally get it. It's, it's very difficult to leave a relationship, especially when it's abusive, because sometimes they make you feel like gaslight you and they make you feel like you're crazy or no one wants you or like they are your best option. So they convince, sometimes they convince women to stay with them Um, which is, you know, terrible. And that's like, those are tendencies of abusive, like relationships. And so, yeah, I just luckily was able to just step out of that. And how did I manage it? I don't really know. I think, I think I was just so upset with myself. I want to say I was so upset with myself that had allowed it to get to that point to the point where he physically hit me and I just kind of just got really just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And I remember um, when he hit me, like uh, he stormed off afterwards, left to work, like if nothing happened. And I remember just being there on the floor, just like really upset crying. And then after about a couple minutes of crying, I was like, called my sister And my sister came and helped me like pack all my things. And like, we just, we bounced, we got out of there and yeah, I like filed a restraining order. And I was like, you know, in that process of doing all that, but I managed it because I was able to reach out to people like my sister to help support me. And, you know, I think it's very difficult because at least when I first told like my family about what happened, certain members of my family were like, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, why is it that we automatically place the blame on the woman, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. 
he hit me. Like, what are you, what are you, why are you insinuating that I did something to deserve that, you know? And um, I was just so happy that I had my sister who like asked no questions, helped me pack, helped me figure it all out. You know, she like truly unconditional love from her. And I was uh, really embarrassed about what happened. I was very, I didn't tell many people. I didn't really tell too many of my friends the details. You know, I just said, we broke up. (laughs) Um, And as I got older, I felt more confident sharing that story because I realized that so many other women are probably dealing with the same thing. And, you know, I did feel ashamed to to say anything. I did feel ashamed to to open up to people. Uh, This happened like, I think I was 20 years old when this first happened. And I only started to talk about it openly last year at 29. <laughs> so it took me nine years to feel comfortable in even sharing the story because I realized it's much bigger than myself. Like if I can help one person, you know, who's in a similar position, then, you know, it was worth it to share the story, you know? No, absolutely. It is a very traumatic experience. And like you said, a lot of people feel shame because they're like, oh, my God, what are they going to think that like, you know, I'm so dumb or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I deserved it or, you know, mm-hmm. I can't believe I they didn't get away earlier. So what would you say would be like if somebody somebody who's going through that, what, what is the thing that you would suggest that they should do the first thing? Maybe talk to somebody or not. First of all, like probably is don't think it's your fault. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so hard because I think it's something so personal, personable, or personal and vulnerable that it, it is hard to reach out for help. But I think the main thing I would tell someone is um, I think we're able to recognize, you know, a toxic behavior with like maybe our friend's relationship, you know, or Mm -hmm. someone we care about, like when we're on the outside, Mm -hmm. right. I can like see my friend and maybe they're dating someone. I'm like, I don't really like him because I don't like the way he talks to her. Right. It's very obvious. So what I try to do is I would say, try to see yourself as a friend. Like, don't like try to look at yourself as a friend. And if, if they, you know, if your partner talked to your friend in that way, like you wouldn't be okay with it for your friend. Right. So then why do you let yourself get treated that way? Like, why is it okay, not okay for her, but it's okay for you to go through that? That's a good good way to look at it. Yeah. And I think after that, it's more so like reaching out to somebody to like, just to open up and talk to maybe someone can help, you know, give perspective or give encouragement or even for like, for example, for my sister, she just like took me in and just, you know, Mm -hmm. So. It's like safe, you have a safe space that you could at least vent and you know that you're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just telling someone that you trust, um, I think that's a big, big yeah. Thing. It's, it's a, it's like you said, it's very personal and it's very hard because they mm-hmm. gaslight you and then you, you, you're like, oh no, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. But knowing that it's, it's not your fault, I think that's really, really key. But mm-hmm. you did awesome. Not only did you get out, you actually, so now you, you actually left um, and now you are working as an aerospace engineer. So how did you, uh, how did you manage to get your job? And, you know, is it the, uh, are you, what are you doing that now? And you, I know you're loving what you're doing. So how did that all work out? Yeah. So that's such a good question because 
I wish it was like straightforward and easy, you know, like, oh, I graduated and I got a job <laughs> in the field I love. That's not how it worked. Um, because I went through like that traumatic experience with like, like my relationship, I, you know, didn't seek help because in my culture, like Latino culture, like therapy is not seen as like a, in a positive light. It's more seen as like, oh, you're, you're seeing a therapist, like something's wrong with you, like mm -hmm. something's wrong with your head or whatever, which is a terrible mindset to have because I think therapy, regardless of whether it's for something like PTSD or anything, it honestly, if it helps you feel better, if it helps you think better, like it's going to help you in so many facets of life. So um, when I started off, when I graduated, I just didn't think I deserved the degree I got. I didn't get the best grades because I ended up working a lot at the end of college to help my family. So I was working full-time and doing a full-time college degree, which was incredibly difficult. And um, I just kind of thought like, oh, because my grades are not as good as my peers, like I'm not a real engineer. Like I'm not as smart or I'm not this or that. I was, you know, um, didn't believe in myself. So I took a job that I didn't really want, but I took, they paid me, right? Um, and I started off there and through my career, I started to realize, no, F, F me thinking that just because I have a low GPA that like I can't do great work because I've, you know, I would teach myself like new concepts or new theories or new things to help me in my job. Like I was very, I took initiative. I taught myself things. I you know, signed up for classes that would have given me a, a stronger skill set. And I started to build myself and stop depending on my employer to do that for me. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I was able to really climb up much quicker and land positions that I was better qualified for and that paid me much more. And at some point, like uh, a couple years ago in 2018, my, my dad passed away and I was you know, it was a very tough part in my life. Um, but I think in his passing, I taught me that life is short. Mm -hmm. Life is short. And what am I doing with my time? Like, what is life anymore? I just lost the most important person in my life, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone who's been with me since I was born. And mm -hmm. what does my life even mean without them? You know, and I think I started to really question my purpose in my life. And I just told myself, I'm not going to work at a job that I'm like, that's just paying me money. I want to work somewhere where I feel valued and I feel like I'm doing something and I'm making an impact. And I'd always wanted to do, um, you know, work in the space industry. So at the time I was working in like fiber optic, the fiber optic industry. And I told myself, I'm going to quit in three months. I'm going to travel the, you know, travel to, to Asia for a couple months. And when I get back, I will find my next job in the space industry. That's literally what I told myself. And I didn't really have a plan. I just did that. And um, yeah, when I came back, I had several job offers from really great companies. And I turned them down because they weren't jobs in the space industry. And I ended up moving to Washington. And now I work in the space industry. Uh, we build commercial uh, flight vehicles. And I absolutely love what I'm doing. Um, but it took me having to like, set the standard higher for myself and be like, I'm literally saying no to everything 
that is not what I want, which is very scary to do because it's very scary to get offered a job that pays really well. And then for me to go and say, you know what, like, thank you for your time, but no, thank you. It was probably the most empowering thing I've done in my life, I feel. Oh, for sure. You know, because it takes, first of all, it takes a lot of guts to come out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and then push yourself to do things that people would normally never do, right? So it's everybody has their own, um, you know, motivation to do it. But that that is really cool Um, because I know how hard it is to be not in familiar territory at all. And you not only did that, but you also learned martial arts and you started your own business. So how did all of that happen? Uh, that's a really great question. So I started training uh, jiu-jitsu, which is a form of martial arts, uh, I think back in 2019 or 2018. I was introduced to it in 2018, but I didn't start practicing it fully until 2019. And I just fell in love with it because I think jujitsu is a sport where you don't necessarily need to be the bigger person to win. You don't need to be the strongest person in the room to win. You just have to have great technique. You have to, and having great technique means showing up and just doing, sucking, showing up and sucking for a very long time until you don't suck anymore. (laughs) So, and I just really like that concept of it's continuous improvement of yourself and not necessarily just, just to do, you know, just to show like what you can do, what you're capable of. And I kind of absolutely love that idea of just showing up, working hard and, and improving day by day. Right. So, um, as I was training jujitsu, I, there's a, some like a rash guard or different things that I needed for the sport, geese, things like that. Um, and I realized I couldn't find any that fit me well, or that had designs on them that I actually like felt like represented me. Um, and I thought, well, that kind of sucks. That sucks that I can't find a product that I vibe with or that represents me. Right. Um, a lot of companies, big companies will have a small section for women and it's like three simple designs in pink or purple, but the guys have like 40 designs with really Mm -hmm. elaborate things. And I think I thought that was not fair. So I could have either just accepted that or done something about it. So I chose to launch a company that focused on, um, women in, uh, martial arts and specifically jujitsu. And I started to design different things that I felt, you know, represent me and hoping that, you know, they speak to somebody else out there. Uh, so that's kind of how I launched that. It was not, I have not a plan. It was just kind of, just happened. Out of, yeah, it just happened out of, you those know, are usually one of the, some of the best ones, right. That just kind of fall into place and then it just, you just kind of run with it, but you yeah. do have another business as well. Don't you? Yeah, I also have, so being first generation, um, I had to learn, I was the first to graduate from college, the first to have like a career that offered a 401k or any of that stuff, which was not talked about in my family. I mean, my mom never got offered a Mm -hmm. 401k for, you know, her work. So I was kind of starting from scratch. Like, so I had to teach myself a lot about personal finance, 
retirement, uh, investing, just all these things. And I realized there's also a lot of other people who are in our shoes being first generation. So I kind of started off just blogging about it, um, just talking about, you know, high yield savings accounts and retirement and just mindset for saving or different things. And, um, and doing that, I realized a lot of people wanted to like learn these things. So I now offer um, like coaching, uh, financial accountability, and I'm hoping to have a couple classes coming up maybe in the summer. So that's awesome. Yeah, I just figured if I took all the time to like teach myself that I might as well give this to people to learn from it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of it's a lot it is it is it is so you said something in the summertime so you're going to be working towards that yes that's what I'm working on right now so you have you know um you're in your late 20s you're working in corporate um you know you have had to learn uh some of the finance stuff the hard way so Mm -hmm. what would you say are your top three pieces of advice that you wish you had known Mm-hmm. that you don't that that you know now uh like financial financial financially okay, okay. related financial related okay I think the first one man I think the first thing I would have taught myself was don't be afraid of credit because I think there's this fear of credit uh in my family mm-hmm. and to me like credit was bad you know I think that's something because credit is necessary for getting low interest on loans or getting like a mortgage. So credit is important. So I would say, don't be afraid of credit. Credit is not bad. Um, How you, your behaviors with money, you know, when it comes to credit, that might get you in trouble, but credit itself is not bad. It's important to have strong credit. Uh, The second thing I think I would say is, um, I wish I would have known more about retirement accounts starting off early because realizing that with uh, compound in like compounding your money, the earlier you start, like the more you can, you can, you know, save. So putting in, you know, a small amount in the beginning early on is more than putting a whole bunch of money aside for retirement later, Mm -hmm. because you have all those years to compound that really, really makes a big difference. So I think maybe I'm going to change my answer. That's the number one thing I wish I would have done. I put away more into my retirement, opened a, you know, an IRA on the side as well, max that out. Um, and the third thing is, um, so I think the third thing I want to say is don't buy the hype. Mm. Don't buy the hype. Like there's all these people with like flashy things uh, like straight out of like college, nice cars, designer bag, designer clothes, designer everything. Don't buy into the hype because there your money can work for you in so many more ways and as opposed to these low ROI items, right? Like a, mm-hmm. like a brand new car or, you know, all these things, they don't necessarily add value. They may not add va- as much value as you think they do. And you can make a lot more money by like using and spending that money in different ways. So I would think those are my three financial related things that I wish I would have known in my early twenties. 
You're so young. You still have time on your side. So yeah. And I always, I always tell people like, if you don't have a high yield savings account, get one. Get one. You can get it for free. You don't have to pay. No fees. No fees. No minimum balances. Like, yeah, that's, that's the one thing I, I realize a lot of people don't know about high yield savings accounts. So I'm trying to get the word out there. Like, girl, like you need to be making the most as much as you can. Mm. And that's one way to, you know, save more money in a better way. Yeah, no, I'm all for it. I mean, even I learned late about, you know, a lot of the money, financial mm-hmm. issues. That's why it's so n- near and dear to my heart, because I'm like, mm-hmm. people need to know they don't need they don't have, even if you may be surrounded by people, but not everybody's talking about it, you know, right. the, the, especially mm-hmm. in the immigrant community, a lot of people don't talk about because we brought up to think that, oh, you don't talk right. about money and, you know, women don't right. need to know and, you know, the men will take care of everything. And then you realize mm-hmm. it's, that's not the case. You have to know. You may not mm-hmm. use it, but at least you need to know. So yeah, it's very, very important. Absolutely. So you should be so proud of, what you have become look at you i mean you've been through so much you started your own company a couple of businesses mm-hmm. you're doing your dream armageddon was right you're now <laughs> doing space engineering <laughs> you're doing uh, aerospace engineering you're loving what you do you're trying to make a difference in the community so when when other women are looking at you you know so just like you and they want to follow their dreams what would you want to tell them Mm, that's a good question. I think the number one thing to do is I think a lot of people, especially in, in communities communities of color, we are so community-based, family-based. We want to give back to our community. We want to help our families. We want to help our siblings. We want to give so much. And I think that's awesome. But you cannot give if you're not putting that energy and time and effort into yourself. So I always want to start people off with saying, um, your cup needs to be overflowing before you decide to go and help others. Because if you try to help others when you haven't filled your own cup, you're just kind of depleting yourself of opportunities of, you know, making more money of your mental health, of so many things. And I think once your cup is full, when you do give back, it's from a true place of, you know, genuine care and not like, oh, I need to do this because I'm the oldest or I need to do this because they need help. It needs to come from a place of, I I get to do this. I get to help them. I want to help them because I've helped myself first. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the number one thing I would say for any person of color who's first generation. Like that's something that weighs heavy on our shoulders and do you first. It's not being selfish, others. right? It's not a it's, selfish thing. Mm-hmm. It's a survival thing. Yes, exactly. Now that is, that is, that is so important. Now looking, knowing all the stuff that you, you know, knowing what you know now and looking back, what would you, what would you tell your younger self? Or would you tell you anything, you know, to your younger self? knowing what you know now. Yes. I think what I would have told myself younger was you don't need the validation of white men, period. I wish I would have really believed that when I was younger because I think a lot of my career, I sought that. And I was like, I don't need to be validated by any one of y'all. 
<laughs> like I just need to believe in myself. And I, and I really wish that was something that I uh, would have really believed in when I was younger. That is in today's day and age, I think that is so important for a lot mm-hmm. of us to hear because I think a lot of us still do that because we think we need permission and we need, yes. you know, somebody's validation. You don't need right. that. Just yeah. go out and do it. Yeah, absolutely. Even to this day, sometimes I'll be hesitant about like asking you to do something extra for work or, or wanting to maybe like, maybe just say, you know what, I do like what I'm doing, but I want to create a new role. And the new role I want is this, this, and this, and I would like to get paid this much for it. Like, you know, like that's, I feel like so many people feel like they can't do that. And it's like, there's absolutely no reason you can't go and say, I'd like to create this new role, please. (laughs) Right. Because I'm dope. I deserve it. And I deserve to get paid for it. Um, So I'm still challenging, challenging myself to even like continue to do that, continue to push for myself and advocate for myself in those ways. Because, you know, I, women, I feel like, I feel like women uh, do so much, right? Like on top of being like, in your career and doing your thing, women are also like our mothers, like they, they give birth. They like literally see the world, like their world surrounds about around this thing that happens. And it's like so crazy that so many women are able to balance like a career and, you know, bringing up a child. And I just truly believe that women have this unique, different perspective to bring to any company that they're working in or any PhD program that they're a part of or any, anything, whatever it is they're working on. Like it's a unique perspective that really adds so much more value than, than people like to admit. Oh, I totally agree. Hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, No, but thank you so much for your time today, EB. I really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, more of you and your businesses thrive and the very, very best of luck. Thank you. Well, I'm just honestly so happy to be here talking to you today. And I'm very excited to see where like meet and greet all your guests and see what you do with the podcast. And I'm so excited. Oh, no, thank you. I'm um, going to be coming up to... uh, you know, 50 episodes shortly. And wow, that's so amazing. Yes. 50 I'm, episodes. So- Girl, that's like, I hope you like give yourself a huge pat on the back because <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, thank you. It is, it is a labor of love. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, the, and, and I'm so excited to talk to people from all over the world. It's like, I get to hear such amazing stories and I listen to all the things that you guys do. And, I, you know, it, it really does inspire me, you know, so this, that's what keeps it going. Cause I'm like, you know, we, we're the badass women. Okay. We're yes. just like, <laughs> and so it's awesome to hear the stories and it truly, truly inspires me. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Cause I think it's like stories like yours that just make it all the more better. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And in Spanish is a term that I love to use and it's chingona, which means um, badass woman. Um, and it's like a Spanish term. And I absolutely like, yes, we are chingonas. We are badasses. And, yes. you know, I'm so excited to hear about all the women that you interview. Thank you. I'm going to actually put that as a hashtag on my <laughs> 
That's I'm awesome. here for it. I love awesome. it. Well, thanks, Evie. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you love the show, please leave a review. Just remember, you could be one story away from being inspired.